welcome to the third episode of The Eclectic Highway. I'm very excited to have Graham Conway as my second guest on the show. Now, I've known Graham for about three to four years, and I have to say, if I had to pick the strongest voices on LinkedIn promoting our eclectic future, Graham would definitely be one of them. Graham has been a contributor on my Hugger Engine website. He's a fellow TEDx speaker, and we have an exciting project that we're both working on that you'll hear about later on in the interview. So as you can see, we both believe that the future is eclectic. But enough of me talking, let's start the interview. So Graham, for listeners who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what you're working on now? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, thanks for having me on, Kelly. Uh, really looking forward to this podcast, really looking forward to getting involved in it for a, a while now. And I know you've uh, spent a lot of time kicking it off the ground, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased to be involved early on in it. Um, so I'm Graham Conway. I work at Southwest Research Institute in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Um, I always have to say it's in San Antonio, Texas, because if, if you listen to me speak, it doesn't sound like I'm in the right place. Um, I moved to Texas about four or five years ago, um, and I've, I've been working on lots of interesting automotive projects ever since. Uh, so I've got a, a number of different roles at Southwest Research Institute. For, for those who don't know what Southwest Research Institute is, it's a, kind of a, a science institute where we work in all the physical sciences and we do things from deep sea to deep space and everything in between. And my little automotive section is just a, a little bit in between, but of course, very, very relevant today. So I'm, I'm involved in testing of engines, uh, single cylinder, multi-cylinder engines, uh, also in modeling. Uh, my background is modeling, a, a PhD in combustion modeling, uh, one dimensional though, not, not three dimensional. Um, and then at, uh, at Southwest now, I've, I've kind of moved more into a, a program project management role. So I, I manage our hedge consortium, which is a, uh, it's, it stands for high efficiency dilute gasoline engine. Um, and it's really just working with a bunch of the, the, the key players in the industry. So OEMs, tier one, tier two suppliers, um, looking at how to make the engine better for the future, how to make the engine more efficient, how to have lower emissions uh, and how to make it relevant in the future. Um, and I also work on some consulting project pro programs as well, which is um, where I will go and speak to different companies around the world um, and talk about the future of the automotive industry. Um, and that's that's really that's really kind of of, of, of what I like to do and, and my role at Southwest at the moment. Well, that sounds great. So thank you for explaining that. So how how are you doing right now? It's a really interesting time we're in with COVID-19 and, and working from home and things like that. So how has your life changed over the last few months? Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. Um, I think everybody can safely say it's definitely changed. Um, some some bits for the better, some bits for the worse. I think when, when I, Felix was on last week, he was saying the UK was entering the ninth week of lockdown. Uh, I think we're now entering our eighth week of lockdown here in Texas. Um, I still regularly talk to my parents back in the UK, and it definitely sounds like the lockdown in the UK is a little bit more severe or strict than it is certainly here in Texas. Um, but so I'm I'm kind of working from home. Uh, Southwest Research Institute is still open, so we're we're still doing testing projects. We're we're seen as an essential service. Um, so we're, we're still running engines and we're still getting data and we're still processing it and we're still working as we were before. It's just my role. Uh, I don't have the excuse to, to go and test engines anymore. So I'm, I'm at home and have been at home for the last several weeks now. Um, definitely made a difference to, to how I'm working. It's definitely been interesting to, 
to speak to people on the phone and, and see some of the dynamics of conference calls on the phone rather than sitting in the meeting room and having six people speak at once and then nobody speaking for the next 10 seconds because nobody knows who wants to speak and all sorts of weird things you have to get used to. But uh, we're, uh, we're a very adaptable species and I think we're, we'll, uh, we'll get them out of this okay. And what, what life looks like post-COVID-19 is, is, is pretty interesting and certainly some of the some of the work I'm doing at the moment, analyzing the industry and analyzing what's going to happen after COVID-19 is really interesting because it's a situation which is changing daily and it's changing in a big way daily. So uh, it's um, it's certainly certainly changed things a lot. Yeah, definitely. It, it's weird for me to think about this now, but having Zoom meetings all day long actually is starting to feel normal. And although there's still, like you said, there's a lot of uh, hiccups in that method. And, you know, I, I'm actually, I can't wait for the day when I can sit in a conference room with, with, you know, other people and, and, you know, when we deem that that's safe and, you know, have these conversations live, but, but Zoom is getting to feel more normal, which is really strange for me. Yeah. And I, I think something else, which has uh, changed a little bit is, is, it's nice to talk to people now who, you know, the customers I work with and the clients I work with, they actually don't mind hearing from me. Now, I'd like to think they don't mind hearing from me uh, all the time, but certainly now when you're just talking to your your family and your close co-workers day in, day out, it's nice if someone new rings you and talks about something different. So uh, that's definitely you know, even though we can't see each other anymore, it's definitely brought that kind of uh, a feeling of acceptance and just just wanting to be involved in things, and uh, that that's been a really positive thing, I think. Yeah, I like that. That's a nice uh, that's a nice positive spin on on this whole thing, and I agree with you. I, I've I've noticed that as well. Um, you know, Graham, though, you're always free to call me up. I will always accept you, even post COVID nineteen. I uh, just want to let you know that. That that's really encouraging to know. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so you you know you mentioned um, you had a nice description there of Southwest Research and kind of what your role is there. You did mention that you do consulting at Southwest Research. Can you go into a little more detail about that? What type of consulting work are you working on? Yeah, so I run the program at Southwest called uh, PCS, um, and that's where we have a program, um, Powertrain Consulting Service, where we discuss some of the key challenges with uh, powertrain in the industry. Um, so we look at regulations in the future uh, in different markets. Uh, we try to predict which technologies will be required to meet those uh, regulations in the future. And that's on the, the, uh, the greenhouse gas side as well as the criteria pollutant side. Um, I work with companies in Europe, in America, in Asia, so get to do a lot of traveling and, and speak to a lot of different companies and a lot of different suppliers. And it really it helps me because it gives me a nice insight in, in, into the industry. Uh, and I hope it helps them as well to, to be able to impart some of our, our knowledge and our opinions on where the industry is going and uh, what we think we're going to need to have for the future of the automotive industry. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, sounds like a really nice role. So good luck with that. And I, I'm happy that people like you are having an influence on, you know, what industry is doing, but also taking back from them, you know, what they're what they're letting us know. And so we can convey that to the community. So that leads me into my next question. So what are we going to be driving in five, 10 or even 20 years time? What do you think we'll be driving? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I think Felix gave a really nice answer to this one last week where he said, well, if it's a forecast, 
you know, you're probably never going to be right with a forecast. So that that's one certainty. And that takes a lot of pressure off of answering the question. Um, I, I start by asking a question back to you. And that would be, you know, just what car do you drive today? Do I drive? Yeah. So I drive, uh, I drive a, a BMW five series with, uh, it does have stop start technology, micro hybrid, I'll say. Um, but that's what, that's what I drive today. How about you? Uh, at the moment, I also have a, a five series BMW. Uh, previously I had a little electric, uh, I3, um, with the range right. extender. So that was, that was good fun. Um, but I, I think, I think if I was to ask you the question much more generally, um, and answer it for you as well, I think most people, they drive a car that best meets their needs, right? And, and the word best is ambiguous, but right. it's based on a set of criteria that you've set for yourself. So whether that's financial or practicality or performance or looks or environmental impact or anything it could be, even, you know, how big are the cup holders? It's, it's a set of criteria that you've set for yourself. And that's why you drive that car. It's met all of those requirements. And I think as we look into the next five, 10 and 20 years time, that same personal criteria still applies. So you're still going to choose the vehicle that meets whatever criteria you're setting for yourself at the time. Now, the only thing that really has a, a real external influence on that is regulations. Um, so if we start to see uh, internal combustion engine bans coming into place, um, or if we start to see regulations driving certain technologies, that might change what you're going to buy. Uh, but if you have a choice, you're still going to, you know, um, try and pick the best thing you can possibly buy for the money you have. I think more generally, as we move into the future, certainly in markets like Europe, we're going to see more and more electrification, starting off with 48 volt mild hybrid systems, moving to uh, higher and higher voltage systems with more electrical capability. And that's to meet the very strict uh, CO2 standards that are now coming out of Europe and, and of course, China as well. Um, in the US, maybe a little bit more relaxed, especially with the rollback and the, the one and a half percent improvement now, that might change the technology mixes we're going to see in America as well. Um, but but generally, there's a, you know, an, I think an acceptance and something I very much agree with is that there will be more and more electrification in the future. Um, and and I, I do believe that is the right thing. Okay, let me uh, ask a follow-up question to that. When you say more and more electrification, because there is, I think, I think uh, you and I and others in the industry have done a really good job, kind of educating the public about the difference between electrified and electric, right? And so, when you say more and more electrification, what do you mean? Yeah, and that's that's um, that's something you've got to be careful of, especially. For those people in the automotive industry, I say electrification, and I assume you know what electrification means, and maybe you know what electrification means, but the general public don't. The general public hear elect, and that's about all they hear of that before they think it's a fully electric vehicle like a Tesla. Um, so when I say electrified vehicles, I just mean more and more motors, battery packs are going to be coming onto cars. Now that doesn't mean there won't be engines, it just means there'll be more and more of the electrified components to help the vehicle out where it needs the most. And more importantly, it will help the vehicle out where the engine is inefficient. So the engine, certainly a gasoline engine, is, is pretty inefficient when it's a, you know, the vehicle's just, just going along very, very slowly. And that's the perfect opportunity for an electric motor to come in and help out. 
Um, so when I say electrification and electrified, I'm talking about hybrids uh, more than full electric vehicles, even though I still believe the full electric vehicle has a place as well. Yeah, and you and I agree very much on on that. So thank you for explaining that uh, to our audience. That was very helpful. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here because we talked about 5, 10, and 20 years time. But now I'm going to ask you in 2050, so pretend we're in 2050, and I want you to give a forecast, at least somewhat of a forecast. I know I know it's difficult, and usually we're always wrong with our forecast. But if you had to guess, if you had to wave your magic wand and say, here's what the mix will look like in 2050, what does it look like to you? What do you think it's going to be? So I think with the current regulations we have in place now, even though they don't go out to 2050, but just extrapolating on where they've been going recently, um, I think we will see quite heavy electrification uh, in certain areas. So I think somewhere like Europe, we're probably looking, you know, upwards of 50% uh, full electric vehicles in many countries. Um, certainly those people who are, you know, uh, who live near the cities, and if there are internal combustion engine bans completely, like like the UK is talking about, then the electric vehicle is your kind of your only option now. Um, I think the answer very much depends on the country you're in, um, what meets your needs again, and of course the the uh, if there's any extra regulations. Well, it's also going to push it, and this is a major. Um, I guess, or a very, very sensitive factor is the rate of ba the battery technology improves. So the, one of the limitations or the, the challenges to getting into an electric vehicle is the cost. Um, so even though once you have the vehicle, the total cost of ownership can look quite attractive because generally there's a little bit lower maintenance, the electricity costs a little bit less. Um, the 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 initial buy-in price is is higher than a hybrid or a, a a conventional gasoline vehicle and and that's an argument i have a little bit of a problem with when i hear it on the internet is that the total cost of ownership is is lower uh because it's kind of like saying well if you could do all your uh, banking in an offshore account in the cayman islands you'd be much better off on a tax perspective um but it's not so easy for everybody to be able to do that so there's there's kind of this 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 barrier to entry which is the cost and as batteries become more efficient uh, as they have higher and higher energy and power densities and as the cost comes down then once the price pa reaches parity with a conventional or a hybrid i think we'll start to see a, a faster uptake in electric vehicles just based on a natural progression of course things like regulations and bans might force that a little bit earlier but i think naturally for people they'll 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 only really start to consider it when it's something that they can financially afford and I think one of the key things is at the moment, an electric vehicle is is very expensive, certainly in the US based on the US median income. Um, and the other part is, is an electric vehicle as practical as an internal combustion engine vehicle? If you just need to use it to, to do short range distances around a city, electric vehicle looks fantastic. If you, if you want to go and if you're in the US and you want to go and drive, eight, nine hundred, fifteen hundred, two thousand miles in winter, maybe the battery electric vehicle isn't such a, a nice uh, proposition at that point. Um, and so I, I think it really, really depends on on where we're going to end up uh, in terms of people's needs. 
Uh, and certainly on the, the practicality side, it's, you know, are you going to need that electric vehicle to do everything my internal combustion engine vehicle can do now? Maybe I'll compromise a little bit on charge time if I can charge at home. Um, but there's so many nice things about an electric vehicle in terms of acceleration and, and the the local criteria pollutants that, that mean it's it's something that should be attractive to a lot of people. It's just not something I'm comfortable with. Uh, people saying, well, it's the answer today. We must do it now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I agree with you on that. And thank you for not saying that there's zero emissions, by the way. Not that I would expect you to. I know you know better. <laughs> but as, as you know, a lot of people out there are still saying zero emissions. And that's something we have to, on a daily basis, kind of educate people on. So thank you for that. Yeah, and you know, you've seen you've seen my... I guess a better word than arguments would be debates on LinkedIn uh, on the, the topic of zero emissions. Um, I'm, I'm now seeing more and more people seeing things like zero tailpipe emissions, uh, which I think is a, it's just one word, but it's a massive step in the right direction. Because again, if you say zero emission, then the answer is given. It, it's, not a, it's not up for debate. It's something you have to do because it's zero emissions. And you, right. you don't get better than zero. Uh, but I think we know that they aren't zero. They're significantly lower, yes. Um, but there's lots of factors that play into just how close to zero is that number when you factor in things like where are the batteries made, how do you charge the vehicle, and what type of driving do you do. Yeah, exactly. And, and I actually had a LinkedIn post very similar to what you just described where I was basically saying what a difference one word makes, right? Just put tailpipe in there. Of course, now you have people saying things like, well, that doesn't make any sense because electric vehicles don't even have a tailpipe. So, I mean, there's always going to be some arguments for how this is worded, but I think putting zero tailpipe emissions at least says, look, there is no tailpipe. Therefore, there's zero, zero tail, tailpipe emissions. So I, I'm very happy to see that as well. I'll, uh, still some work to do, though. Um, so, okay. So thank you for talking about how you think the future is looking. So based on that, why do we still want to develop the internal combustion engine today? Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of my, my key motivation at the moment is to get this message across is, you know, if I say in 2050, if we look at a you know, a realistic time frame, or maybe optimistic time frame. There's going to be 50% of vehicles are going to be full battery electric vehicles. That still means 50% of vehicles being sold have an engine. So, if we stop developing the internal combustion engine today, then that means the vehicles being sold in 2050 will have engine technologies on them that are 30 years old. You know, it would be like today, everybody driving around in a car from the 1990s. Um, and I think we we would all appreciate going back to the 1990s and seeing how much worse uh, emissions were then. And I think we owe it to ourselves to continue to try to improve the engine. You know, it's it's not it's not reached its maximum efficiency, and you know, lots of engines have really good efficiencies, but it's in an area where maybe you don't drive the vehicle that often. And so that's really the key challenge for the engineers today is to make the engine better and make us utilize it better. Uh, and I think that's where again hybrids come in can come in to to really try to you know tie everything together and and help us use the internal combustion combustion engine in the the best possible way because I I really don't like the the thought of 
not improving the engine for the next 30 years. I, I did a calculation at one point and uh, trying to remember the number off the top of my head, it was a uh, hundred million tons of CO2 extra if we gave up on the internal combustion engine today um, because of those vehicles that are going to be sold in, in 30 years time with 30 year old technology on them. And that doesn't really sound acceptable. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's our responsibility to keep improving the internal combustion engine for exactly the reasons you just described. You know, there are a lot of people out there that'll say, oh, the IC engine hasn't really changed in 100 years. It's a 100-year-old technology. And, you know, you and I both know, because we work in this industry, that that's completely not true, right? I mean, engines have improved significantly over the years in terms of efficiency and and emissions and things like that. And even the introduction of after-treatment systems is a big deal. So, so yeah, I completely agree with you. So thank you for that. Now, here's a question that um, I'm really curious how you answer this question. And it's related to the last one, but should we be banning internal combustion engines? What are your thoughts on that? So uh, I think in the short term, my answer is no. Um, for reasons I've discussed earlier about you know, if you ban the internal combustion engine, then you're going to have to make people buy into electric vehicles. Um, and they're too expensive at the moment. So you're going to have to have huge incentives and huge government incentives are generally funded by the taxpayer. So they, they pay for it one way or another. It'll also be, have to be a massive push for infrastructure. So building the electric charging requirements. Uh, and I don't think that's something we can do naturally or efficiently in the short term. I think longer term, I think my answer is is yes. So as a proponent of the internal combustion engine, it might sound strange that I'm saying, yes, we should be banning them. I think the timescales are where it gets really important. And I'm not talking about a blanket ban either. I'm not saying we must ban all internal combustion engines by the year 2050, um, because there's certainly areas where we still need internal combustion engines. There are uh, modes of transportation outside of personal transportation, which are very nicely suited to the internal combustion engine at the moment. So the, the heavy duty hauling, um, things like uh, aeroplanes, um, oil tankers, uh, transportation tankers or transportation cargo ships. These are things that rely very heavily on the internal combustion engine to uh, be able to move around. Now, as I realize, as I say it, an oil tanker kind of becomes uh, irrelevant if you started to ban oil anyway. Um, but certainly there are bigger forms of transportation which do require engines and just the, the energy density of, of, of hydrocarbon liquid fuels is just so fantastic that it becomes very difficult to replace those in the short term. So I think, yes, cities would be the first place to start banning internal combustion engines, uh, especially where there's good infrastructure in place and uh, when we have affordable electric vehicles, then that's where we start to do it. But I don't think it's fair to just blanket ban uh, everything all at once because we've got so much left to, to improve. And until we get to the point where we're not selling internal combustion engines, that's when we should stop developing them and not before. Okay, thank you for that answer. So something you and I have in common is we both give in TEDx talks. Um, I think a lot of the listeners, I hope, uh, have watched both of our talks. Um, you know, mine was a few years ago. Yours was late last year. So yours was much more 
much more current. Can you describe, in case people haven't seen the talk, or maybe to entice them to maybe go check out the talk, and I will put a link uh, in the show notes as well, so to make it easier on the listeners to go check that out. But can you describe just a few of the key messages of your talk? Yeah, sure. So first of all, the TEDx, great experience. Um, highly recommend it to anyone who's got an idea and they want to share it. It's uh, it's a lot of work, as you know. You have to go in a lot of rehearsals, a lot of practice, but it it really is a, a real group, really great platform to, to get a message out there. And uh, it came about that uh, the TEDx representatives came to Southwest Research and were looking for ideas for talks. And their, the title of the event was called Reframe. So reframing people's thoughts about things and and something like challenging the notion of zero emission electric vehicles they that really appealed to them because it's something people take for granted but it's something that i have a lot of experience in and, and data to show they're not zero and in fact uh in many cases they're they're a long way away from zero when you look over the life of the vehicle and so that was my 10 12 minute talk on tedx was trying to get across um, what we've already talked about today and that, that uh, electric vehicles are not zero emissions and why they're not zero emission vehicles. So where do the emissions come from? Maybe they, maybe if you put a box around the electric vehicle, you might not measure too many, um, but there's other places involved in the life of that vehicle where emissions are created. And if the goal of what we're trying to do um, as engineers in the, I guess, the, uh, the, the, the energy field is to try to reduce our energy requirements, reduce our emissions. We really need to understand very well to a high degree of accuracy where these emissions are being created, how can we prevent them or how can we mitigate them or certainly reduce them if nothing else. And that should start to guide our thought processes on where we're actually starting uh, to, to attack this problem. And not just saying, you know what, let's just ban internal combustion engines because you know, we've seen where it's very busy in certain areas in, in cities, Delhi, Beijing, places like that, that there can be very poor air quality. Uh, but as Felix and, and you discussed last week, it's not quite fair to, to just attribute that to the internal combustion engine. There's lots of other factors that can drive air quality. So my talk was about where do we look at emissions? Where do we draw the box around the problem so we can really get the right answer out of it? Yeah, and just for the listeners, I highly recommend Graham's TEDx talk. Um, if you're interested in, in the things we're talking about today, you know, the things I talked about with Felix last week, definitely go check out uh, Graham's talk. And again, I will put a link to that in the show notes to make it easy to find. So Graham, you alluded to in, in that, in the answer to the last question there about your TEDx talk, you alluded to this idea of performing a life cycle analysis, you know, not just drawing your control volume around the car and saying, okay, that's the emissions we care about, but really looking at this from a life cycle analysis approach. Can you talk a little bit more about life cycle analysis and what's meant by that? Yeah, certainly. So um, to me, life cycle analysis is, you know, it's more of a, as I mentioned before, where do the emissions come from over the entire life of that vehicle? So if we think about at the moment how we regulate most of the automotive industry, we um, measure what's coming out of the tailpipe, whether that's CO2 and get, that gives us a greenhouse gas reading or whether it's criteria pollutants. Uh, and that's how we judge whether something is good, bad, acceptable or unacceptable. Um, but that's, that's not really fair because 
you know, when you plug your electric car into the wall uh, and charge it overnight, the, uh, there's a high chance that that electricity is being produced by a, a power station, which is running on coal or natural gas. And of course, there's emissions being produced there. Now, for the automotive industry, they're not measuring those. So that's why they have the term zero emission vehicles, because that you just don't measure it in the same way as you do on an internal combustion engine vehicle. But if you were to change your measurement method, you would certainly find emissions. Now, of course, there's other areas of emissions generation as well. When you make the vehicle, you, you don't just click your fingers and see a car in a showroom. You know, it all has to be designed. It has to be manufactured. It has to be transported. And there's energy required in each of those steps. Um, and of course, each of those steps comes with some sort of pollution penalty because at the moment, a lot of the world's energy mix comes from fossil fuels. Um, so when you make a battery, you have to uh, dig the materials out of the ground and it requires a lot of energy to actually make a battery cell. And so the CO2 production of a battery electric vehicle before it even comes to the showroom is maybe two, three times more than an internal combustion engine vehicle. Now, those numbers that I'm, I'm saying here, two to three times, uh, these are op open for debate. There's very difficult to measure the emissions at every step along the process. So there's lots of work going on at the moment into trying to figure out what the right numbers should be. Um, there's also things like the in-use phase. So, you know, when you when you put gasoline into your car, well, that gasoline also had to be made. And there was also energy to make that gasoline. When the vehicle comes to the end of its life, you can crush it um, and you can maybe recycle parts of it. But that's also part of the energy mix and the energy balance. And so you must know the numbers there to really know, okay, over the entire life of the vehicle, what's the best choice for this for a certain scenario? And once we've got a really good handle on that type of calculation, then I think we can start to come up with the right answers and the right conclusions. We can start to set more realistic regulations that are really going to help lower CO2 levels. So you hit on some of the big challenges with LCA, but are there any other challenges that you'd like to speak to? Yeah, certainly. So. There are some big problems and big challenges that we're trying to deal with at the moment. Um, so fortunately, unfortunately, one of the biggest problems we've got at the moment is on the, the set of assumptions we're using to, to come up with these numbers. Um, so one of the problems at the moment is that I can go and pick up a, an open source a lifecycle analysis tool. I can plug some numbers in and I can get an answer out. Now, that's obviously a problem in a lot of ways. Um, but more so with my biases. So because I can just put in any numbers I like, I can, a lot of the time, I can kind of uh, massage the answer to be what I want it to be. Uh, as somebody who's involved with modeling, I'm sure you know the phrase junk in, uh, junk out. Now, I think we have to multiply that by about a thousand when it comes to life cycle analysis, that if you put a little bit of junk in, it's going to completely skew the result and come out as, as something horrible at the end of it. And that's really where the biggest problem is today, is that somebody who's got an internal combustion engine uh, mindset, they're going to come up with a slightly different answer than somebody who comes from the battery electric vehicle field. Even if they were given the same question and the same problem statement, they'd probably come up with a different answer because they choose assumptions and data that supports their narrative. Uh, so one nice example of this 
And I say it's a nice example, not because it's a good example, just because it, it highlights the problem, uh, is, is the, the changing of battery packs. So um, some internal combustion engine studies I've seen, they show, well, you must replace the battery pack on an electric vehicle after 100,000 miles. And that really changes the result massively, because as we mentioned earlier, one of the biggest contributors to uh, emission sources from battery electric vehicles is in the battery production. So if you have to change that halfway through, of course, you're going to come up with a very, very different answer. Um, but I don't think maybe that's that's quite right. You know, there, there's a lot of problems with old batteries and batteries in mobile phones. They don't tend to last all that long at all. Um, but it's very different nowadays with modern battery electric vehicles and modern battery management systems. They do a fantastic job at, at prolonging the life of, of batteries. So that's just one example of an assumption that can completely change the end result. And nobody's really there to challenge it at the moment. Um, so that's that's really one of the, the most difficult things we face at the moment is coming up with a set of assumptions uh, that we can all believe and we can all buy into. Definitely, definitely. So do you have any projects coming up that our listeners might be interested in learning about, maybe related to some of the things you talked about today? Yeah, certainly. So we're actually at Southwest Research working with a number of clients on lifecycle analysis type of topics. Um, and although we can't talk about those specifically, what I can talk about is we're seeing the same problems in there as well, is that, well, shouldn't this be an assumption or, or shouldn't this be an assumption or should we use this data set or should we use this data set? And it's, we're, we're still no further to getting to the right answer. And that's where another idea we've got is a life cycle analysis symposium or workshop at Southwest Research uh, Institute, where what we'd like to do is try to get some of the, the key players in the industry in the room discussing these problems. So trying to come up with what are the right set of assumptions that we could be using in life cycle analysis so we can compare one study from one organization to another, uh, to another study from a completely different organization, perhaps even in a different country with a completely different set of people running that study. How do we, how do we compare those two? And that's really where if we came up with a rigorous set of assumptions, which were maybe even standardized, then we could, I think, start to come up with the right type of answers for, well, okay, if you live in a certain area, um, maybe you come up with a different answer to someone else. So if you live in California and you use a very, very renewable energy source and the, the weather is very, very kind to a battery, maybe you'll come up with a different answer to somebody who's, who's working in the... Uh, the, you know, did getting their electricity from cold sources, and it's a very, very cold climate. And so coming up with the, the right way to attack those problems is how we'll come up with the right answers and how we'll be able to help regulators set appropriate regulations to really find the best set of technologies for our eclectic future. And now the key part of this is, well, if you're going to come up with a event that tries to come up with good assumptions, you really need to be without biases in that as well. And that's where we've got a very nice mix of people on the organizing committee. So you, Kelly, you know you're, you're one of those members. Um, and we started sort of talking about what this life cycle analysis symposium might look like. And it became clear pretty quickly that we're probably going to have some of those biases and we might not come up with the, the right answers. And so now we've expanded it, as you know, to include people from the battery electric vehicle field. 
So hopefully these people can balance us out and we can come up with a set of assumptions that both sides agree on. And then we can go and we can moderate as a, as a committee at the event. And hopefully we can have these good debates and good discussions amongst people from the electric vehicle field and the internal combustion engine field and come up with some assumptions that we agree on and that we can use in the future. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to that. I'm excited to be part of the organizing committee. And I, and I look forward to having these discussions, like you said, with battery electric folks, internal combustion engine folks, and just kind of getting everybody together and agreeing on what is the best way to do this analysis. I think, I think that's a huge, that will be a huge benefit to the community and hopefully it will help influence some policy as well. I, I do want to end on a lighter note here because um, we are, this is the last question. But what is one fun fact about you that our listeners might not be aware of? Can you think of something? Yeah, so so maybe my fun fact would have been I used to drive an electric vehicle, um, but then I've already I've already spoken about that earlier. Um, so I guess I guess another another thing people might not know about me uh, is I like to I like to ride bicycles quite a lot, um, and you know I, I I regularly ride you know 100 200 miles a week. Uh, and, you know, just for a bit of exercise and, uh, when you're out on the road, just cycling, it's been very nice at the moment. The, the traffic's been a lot lighter, so that's been good. Um, but it, yeah, I do have a lot of time to think. And one thing I was thinking about one time was, well, I wonder how much CO2 I'm producing. Uh, if I was to measure myself in the same way as the automotive industry would regulate me, what sort of CO2 would I be producing? And then what sort of CO2 would I be producing on a life cycle analysis? Um, and I came up with some some pretty interesting numbers. I think I'm somewhere between a I'm somewhere just just slightly better than a Prius uh, on CO2 if we were to look at it from a um, uh, a life cycle analysis, uh, and a little bit better than a Prius if I was just to do it on a, a regulated you know a quote unquote tailpipe emission. Um, so that that's kind of you know it's sad that life cycle analysis plays that much of a role in my life at the moment. That even when I'm in downtime, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, well, that's that's something people might not know about me. <laughs> that's that's a great example I, and and entertaining as well. I can just picture you, you know, riding your bike, thinking about your CO two influence on the world. But it it's a very important point because when you do this in the context of life cycle analysis, you start to see that walking, running, biking. I mean, everything has an impact. Um, obviously, some things are much better than others from a life cycle analysis point of view, but kind of all of these things are really affected by our diets and just many other variables as well. So very cool. Thank you for that. So on that note, I think, uh, I think we're done with the interview or we are done with the interview. You've been great, Graham. It's always fun to talk to you about these topics. Um, I look forward to working with you on the LCA symposium and hopefully, you know, in the not so distant future, we're getting people together in a room and, and talking about life cycle analysis. So I really look forward to that, and thank you again for doing this podcast. I think our audience is going to really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Um, thank you again for putting all this together and inviting me on. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk today and, and get some of these uh, discussion points across. So I hope the listeners enjoy it, and I'll certainly be subscribing, and I hope everyone else does. Perfect, perfect. And you know, hopefully, the, hopefully in the near future, we'll be hugging edgins together as well. I, I look forward to it. All right, take care. Thanks, Kelly.
So what did you guys think of my interview with Graham? If you want to leave feedback for this episode, check out the link to the LinkedIn thread in the show notes, where we can have a discussion of this show's content. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Eclectic Highway, on Instagram, at The Eclectic Highway, and on LinkedIn, Peter Kelly Senecal. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. It's now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can grab the RSS feed or listen directly at eclectichighway.com. Remember, guys, the future is eclectic. <laughs>